0: First Peter, last time I really came through verse 18, but I'm going to start reading there again at verse 18 through 25. And I want to tell you in advance that I'm not even intending to deal with the all-important verses 24 and 25. I hope to come back to those for separate treatment next week. So we're concerned especially through verse 23. Listen to God's holy word as Peter was inspired by the Spirit. Verse 18, 2.18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Many Christians are familiar with four initials being put together for an acronym. It was more popular, I think, 10 or 20 years ago, perhaps, than it is seen so much today. But the acronym are the four letters WWJD. In Christian bookstores and such places, you can still find necklaces and bracelets and paperweights and wall hangings and bumper stickers, and all kinds of things that have the initials WWJD. And many people know that this stands for the question or challenge, what would Jesus do? You may not know that that came from, or at least its initial popularization, was in the early 20th century, I believe the 1920s, when a book was published by a man named Charles Sheldon a novel which became a runaway bestseller in that time. Sheldon, who was a Methodist minister, I think, uh, wrote this book and about a fictional town, and a sermon was given in this town which challenged many people to examine in their daily activities and decisions, whether in business or in their school or their neighborly relations or whatever. That they would ask themselves, what would Jesus do in this situation of a decision that I have to make? And of course, people in the book took this to heart, and selfishness and pride and greed and anger and many such things were turned around as they made a Christ like, at least what they assumed to be a Christ like, decision. And the whole town was rather transformed. Well, it was a good book, I think, for its time. Sadly, Sheldon's whole approach emphasized Christianity by works more than it did salvation by grace. But still, his intent was certainly honorable. And the idea of titling it, In His Steps, came from First 1 Peter one twenty-one, where we read, and we read a moment ago, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. I would point out to you that where Sheldon, I think, made a mistake is he thought it was just a matter of our assuming, well, what would Jesus do? I bet I can imagine in any situation what Jesus would do. But the text of 1 Peter is talking about following the steps of Jesus in a very specific way, not a broad general way left to our own imagination. It is following him specifically as we undertake to accept unjust suffering or persecution. And Peter says, you were called to this, to follow your Lord in this kind of suffering. Well, First Peter 2, 21 to 23, I see as really a rather epic mountaintop in the midst of this short New Testament letter. I have called it the Mount Everest passage on human suffering, particularly on suffering not necessarily of the body or disease, but suffering in a social dimension when you are being persecuted, mistreated, abused in some way that is even a dim echo of the abuse and mistreatment that Christ himself received. If you want to discuss the why of God allowing such suffering, you must look at the cross. And that's exactly what Peter does here. Remember, the same Peter who, during Jesus' life, when Jesus suggested he would suffer and die, Peter said, no, 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 not you, Lord. You've got that wrong. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. Now, this is a different Peter This is a Peter seasoned by 30 years of discipleship and suffering and persecution that he himself has experienced. And now he sees that suffering of Jesus in a whole different way as a great and noble example to be followed. And we're told here that every Christian is called to suffer some unjust treatment and it flows out of what he's just been talking about, that there are people over us, in this world, in quotes, over us as government authorities, small and great, as employers. And we think when he's talking to servants, he's not necessarily talking to uh, slaves in the sense of we think of slavery as a great evil in our country, but rather more something like indentured servants who have masters who order them, and we have employers who tell us what to do. And he's saying you're going to face, confront, By those in that government or those who are your economic masters, you're going to confront times when they unjustly treat you. How should you respond? Well, the suggestion is that we take a hard look at the silent submission to persecution of the Lord Jesus Christ. Retrace the steps of Jesus is what he's talking about here. We are called to taste Christ's pains in some small measure before we are allowed to share his glory in great measure in an eternal heaven. The first idea from our text here is this. I'll state it this way. Christians must expect injustice in daily life and employment. It's not an accident when it happens. It's not some rare event. You've been warned. Expect to receive unjust treatment. For if you belong to Christ, you will receive what he received. Now, last time I spoke on verses 13 to 18, and we were told to recognize, even to honor, those put over us in some kind of authority. And we don't have an emperor today. I was happy to be reminded by someone we have a constitution and we are allowed to speak out. And we are allowed to object to what our government is doing, and we elect those who are over us. But nevertheless, the Scripture says, you must honor the office for it's God who put governments in place, even bad government. For they, in some manner, represent the Lord who established them. Verse 13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to human institutions. They are not your masters in the sense that you are slaves to them and you must be afraid of them. In fact, the passage says there's one you must fear, and it's not the president, and it's not the Supreme Court, and it's not the governor. It's God. The only one we're asked to fear here is God, for we are to be slaves, if you will, in a manner of speaking, slaves to God and to no man but we honor and respect and recognize those who are in authority. Now I've heard as a pastor your many stories and over the years I've been in a number of congregations and I'm aware of a whole lot of injustice that Christian people have to deal with, sometimes because of their faith, sometimes for other reasons. I'm aware of your stories of being passed over for a promotion that you thought you would get and expect it, or the fact that you were let go in a company downsizing and you were more experienced than, than others who stayed and you wondered, why is that? Or that you might have to deal with some higher up in the company who scapegoats his own inadequacies upon you and uses you as a whipping boy to blame for what is wrong in the department. Many, many things can be cited where people face injustice in the workplace, sometimes having to do with a Christian testimony, sometimes not at all necessarily. Well, remember the great theme of 1 Peter that started out in verse 1 of chapter 1 that says Christians are living as exiles in a foreign country. We live according to a different code, a different moral and ethical calling because Christ dwells in us we seek, first of all, to, res- to recognize Him and respond to Him and live what this passage calls exemplary lives, lives that are authentic, lives that are in accordance as far as we sinful people can do it according to the Word of God. The cunt- the others uh, in our pagan society look at our lives and they say, why in the world do they do that? Why do they act that way? I don't understand these crazy Christians. And we might suffer for that. Well, the theme of our passage, I think, is summarized pretty well by verse 19 that states it concisely. It says, It is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. We don't think suffering unjustly is gracious, do we? We think, my goodness, I've got to get out from under this. This shouldn't be happening. I've got to you know, make an appeal or, or do something to change this circumstance. But the Scripture says it's a gracious thing if you're mindful of God in the situation to endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. Now, there's a precaution under this first point to prepare you to face injustice or persecution. 1 Peter 2.20 says to make sure you're not suffering for your own foolishness. Make sure it's not things that you've done wrong or your inadequate performance that is the reason the boss mistreats you. Maybe it's just possible that you're doing substandard work and you're not able to admit it or see it objectively as he sees it. After all, aren't we all pretty much ready to defend me to the hilt? Don't we all assume I must do the best work around? Surely, there isn't anybody outperforming me, then why did three people get promoted ahead of me? It could be that someone has standards to apply and says, you know, there's actually things you still have to learn or ways in which you might have to improve. And that's not easy for us to take, is it? We don't like to have perform. We've been doing, believe it or not, we do performance reviews around here in our church, and I do several for the other pastors and some other staff. And Try to objectively help my friends see how they're doing and how they might do better or what their goals are and did they meet them and those kinds of things. None of us wants to think that somebody else has a good reason to criticize our work or our role, responsibilities. It goes against our grain to think that. But I wonder if we might have the kind of honesty as Christians to say to someone else who knows our work or or knows these things, and cares about us to say, look, would you help me and give me, and I'll try to take it from you, give me your honest evaluation of how I'm doing because otherwise I'm not understanding why this boss is giving me a negative evaluation all the time. Maybe you need a good friend who could give you that kind of help. Well, assuming that you are being persecuted unjustly, then... I want to say to you secondly that verses 22 and 23 come into focus and say this, essentially, Christians are called to answer injustice with the rare behavior of Jesus. Today, as I said, we're only going as far as verse 23 here. Verses 24 and 25, I hope next week to show you how Jesus and his cross serve to save us and take away our sins, and that, of course, is the great thing about the cross, But up to and through verse 23, the the behavior of Christ and his going to the cross is given not so much for what he does as Savior, but what he does as an example for us to copy. There's an interesting word used here for example in the Greek. I don't always do this with Greek words for you, but it's, it's kind of a fascinating little word. Hupogramon is the word for example. It's a word that actually means to write over. Now, here's what that's about. In these times, in a, in a school, an elementary school class, there were no, you know, tablets with chalk. There wasn't paper and pen or pencil or crayon. There were, many times, a wax tablet that a student would have, a flat, you know, something where we have an iPad today. They had a, something about the same size, but it was a wax tablet. And the teacher, let's say they were teaching the Greek alphabet, would take a stylus or a metal tool and, and you know, carve the letter alpha or beta or whatever was being taught. And then the student would trace that; he could trace the outline of what was carved with his finger, study that, and then take his own fingernail or maybe another tool and try to make that in a copy. He was writing it over, repeating it until he learned how to write alpha and beta and so on. That exactly is what the text is saying Christ is, a master pattern that we are to seek to study and with a trembling finger trace the activity and the behavior of Christ under persecution and suffering so that we might attempt by the strength of God to trace over and copy his behavior. Now, Peter knows that he's giving the master I use the word Mount Everest that how many of us are going to climb Mount Everest, you know? there are. Do you know there are mountains in Lancaster County? Uh, at least they're called that. There, there's one in Lidditz, if you don't know that. There's a mountain in Lidditz. Go, go check that out. I'll, I'll leave that for your homework assignment. But uh, I don't think it's a mountain, but it's called a mountain. Well, Jesus is here as a mountainous, high, Himalayan challenge of an example. I would betray my generation, in fact, earlier than my generation, if I said I think as a baseball fan that Joe DiMaggio might possibly have been the best center fielder of all time. And one or two of you, please notice, that's a Yankee, I'm praising, not a Boston Red Sox guy. Joe was graceful like a deer. He could catch any ball that came near him, and a wonderful hitter. Many Students of baseball would say, center fielder, Joe DiMaggio, best of all time. Or try to think of someone else, maybe in the realm of music, and I'll get in trouble here, but I think it's fairly safe, I'm on fairly safe ground to say that Mozart is way up there as a composer, and that uh, if you cited Mozart as the best composer of all time, you'd get an argument from somebody, but they couldn't say, Mozart, that bum, you know. They wouldn't get away with that. Well, Jesus, of course, is the incomparable prototype, the flawless original in a class by himself, the peerless sufferer of divine persecution. And God is not saying he expects us to do everything exactly the way Christ did, but here's the example. And, you know, it's not entirely unfair because when you think about it, in many ways Christians are going to suffer for some of the same motivations that Jesus suffered, some of the same kinds of wicked people who don't even understand why they hate us are going to persecute us. And we also have the same spirit in which Christ triumphed because we have his Holy Spirit to help us to learn to copy him and act as he does. Here we are thinking that I am owed a life of comfort and ease when Christ had mainly a life of rejection and persecution and scorn. How dare you think that your life as a Christian could avoid everything that he suffered if indeed you're living according to him and by his principles and by his Holy Spirit. Now, verses 22 and 23 mainly tell us what Jesus did not do. Notice, it's it's negation here, not what he did as much as what he didn't do. He committed no sin. No deceit was in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Isn't that exactly the opposite of what we do when we've been treated unfairly? We scream and holler. We wave our arms, we file complaints, we talk to all our friends about that terrible boss. You know, you got to watch out that you're not talking about the terrible boss at the water cooler when he might be coming around the next hallway to hear you. you got to watch out who you talk to, but you feel pretty free to tell everybody what's wrong with your boss if he's treating you badly. We use words instead of knives and bullets. We aren't like those who come into the workplace when they've been fired and shoot it all up, I hope. But we use words to complain and say, this is unfair, this is wrong, that evaluation is out to lunch. Well, look at Jesus. Is there anything so awesome in all the world as the silence of Jesus in the time especially leading up close to his cross? The things he is not saying. They paid false witnesses to lie about him. He didn't really seem to say anything to those people. They took him over to King Herod, and you have to get a little background on Herod, who was an Idumean, part Jew. The Jews scorned him because he was of mixed blood and because of his uh, really very secular attitude, his non uh, theological or doctrinal attitude towards the Word of God. They despised Herod, even though he was partly Jewish. And Jesus seemed to share that, and he wouldn't even talk to Herod, wouldn't answer anything. Herod said, oh, I've desired to see you for a long time, Jesus. And Jesus just didn't answer it. And then Pilate, of course, Jesus wouldn't banter words with Pilate very much. He said little to Pilate, who wasn't used to the idea of a mute prisoner. He was used to the idea of a prisoner who would grovel at his feet and beg for the governor's mercy. Jesus didn't do that. Most of what he said were things like, oh, is that what you say? Oh, did you think of that yourself? Or did someone tell you? And, and Pilate couldn't understand a man who was so silent. And think of the silence of Jesus on the cross. It's said that one of the prisoners being crucified by his side was, was railing and cursing and, and even cursing at Jesus. Now, Jesus spoke on the cross, but I want you to think about what he said. Every word he said on the cross goes into one of two categories. Either he was praying to God, or he was speaking some kind of blessing to someone near the cross, John or his mother or someone else. He was not in any way other than the prayer, of course, raised to the Father. Father, why have you forsaken me. That was the closest thing to a complaint, and that was a complaint to God, not to man. Jesus, through those last hours and days, was fulfilling the things that Isaiah had said, Isaiah 53, that said he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. How many of us can face treatment that is real injustice, socially or economically speaking, that way. But you see, keeping silent wasn't the only thing Jesus did. We come to the third point here, the capstone of it, and this is the greatest thing. Jesus put ultimate trust for his vindication in the hands of the highest judge of all. First Peter 2.23. He continued. These are the exact words of the ESV translation, and it's very accurate. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That continued entrusting takes up the imperfect voice. In other words, a continual action, not something you do once and say, okay, I trusted God yesterday. I don't have to trust him again. He continued and trusting himself every hour, every minute, every stroke of the whip, every curse, every soldier spitting in his face. He continued handing himself and this entire situation over to God because 2.19 says he suffered while mindful of God. Those are potent words. You can suffer without ever thinking about God. But isn't it different to suffer mindful of God, that God has a role in this, that God is sovereign over this, that God will bring a purpose to pass at the end of this? Jesus was mindful of his Father and that those who made him suffer would face a final accounting. We heard an excellent Sunday school lesson today from Dr. Light about judgment at the end of the age. Jesus had that judgment day in mind. He knew that those who were making his life miserable would face an accounting with God, and they would be terrified and be consumed. So do you really think you're the one who's going to set matters right against someone committing injustice against you? That you, by, you know, using the... I'm not saying don't... If your company has an appeal process and you've been wrong, use the appeal process. By all means, if there are real injustices, express them if you have that opportunity. do not say you can't speak. But don't shriek and rail and expect that your anger is going to do what needs to be done. You need to endure sorrows and injustice while mindful of God. Consciously hand yourself and your situation over to the highest judge of all who may not work things out nicely for you in the present moment or next year or in five years. But he will bring you justice. Paul said in Romans 12, 19, Do not take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And a true word was given to you this morning in a response of assurance in this service psalm 34:19 many are the afflictions of the righteous but the lord delivers him out of them all this minute tomorrow not necessarily a lot of our situations of injustice may go beyond our lifetime but the highest judge of all will give justice I appeal to you today that if you would follow Christ as your example, as this text asks you to, know that you first must know him as your Savior. Did you hear what I said? Christianity isn't about a futile human attempt to just follow God and his example and obey his law. That's about works. It's about grace. It's about bowing before him and accepting the salvation that he graciously gives that will certainly and absolutely be worked out so that all things will be just in the end. It may be that you're just trying hard to have Jesus be your example, but you've never bowed to him and said, Lord, Savior, you must call him that first of all. Those who have known him in a new birth of faith can rightfully then ask, what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Peter says, let's look at what he actually did. And it's fantastic. It's unbelievable. It's hard for any man or woman to imitate. But there he is, our splendid Savior, giving us a splendid way of exerting trust in the highest judge of all will not the judge of all the earth do what is right indeed he will our father i pray for someone today i i don't know who they are or what their situation is but somebody here is chewed up inside about injustice against them in the workplace or by someone they trusted Or by a family member, and they're saying, how could they do that? Lord God, are you going to let them get away with that? I pray that you teach us all the majestic lessons of our Savior who trusted his case to the highest judge of all, and he then was exalted to the highest place of all. Thank you for giving us that marvelous example of Jesus. Help us in small ways to copy him by his strength. Amen.